0: You're going to (laughs) die. Welcome to New Hope. You're going to die, but if you're in Jesus, you're going to live forever. Okay, let's go home. Because that's good. You're going to die. It's a reality. But if you're in Jesus, you're going to live forever. You're going to die. But to live forever, there's a major requirement going on. And, And that requirement, according to Scripture, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you has to be there. God says it's a requirement for your future resurrection. You've got to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. What we talked about last week is called the palingenesia, big Greek word. It's the phrase that Jesus used for being born again. It literally means to have something new put in you. So God says, I can regenerate you. I can make you new. I can make you a new creation, all your past wiped away, a brand new beginning. And the requirement is you have to believe in my son, and I will enter you with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, quick review for you, verse 9, if you're not following along, we're in Romans chapter 8, by the way. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, you see it on the screen. This is what we touched on last week. However, you are not in the flesh, speaking to the church, obviously, here, speaking to believers. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. There's no way in which Paul is trying to throw doubt on your walk with Jesus. I'm not here to try and throw doubt on that. Paul's raising this issue because there's actually encouragement that comes out of this statement. I actually this morning want you to leave here encouraged and I want you to be able to measure yourself. I'm going to give you some measuring rods today to gauge where you're at, whether or not you can say, this is true of me. Paul you're going to find throughout this verse uses the word if a lot. He speaks of the word if repeatedly throughout just a couple verses, and it's not as though he's using it to throw doubt. He's saying, as this is true of you, as in the case of you, believer, you are not in the flesh. Now, if you allow your eyes to drift down, maybe you have your Bible open on your lap or it's on your phone, and, or you want to see it on the screen, I'll show it to you there in verse 14. Just let your eye drift down to verse 14. And you'll see how he links these together. In verse 14, he says, for all, who are not, or for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Verse 9 and verse 14, these two verses in the Bible are perhaps the most specific answers to the question that everybody you know asks. Who's actually a child of God? Who actually belongs to Him? Well, verse 9 and verse 14 answer that. If You've got the Spirit... So accurate doctrine is really important. Insightful theology, really important. But nothing substitutes for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Without that, you can't hope for eternal life. If you don't have the dwelling and if you don't have the guiding, there's a problem right at the very, very core. In chapter 1 of Romans, we saw that Paul's big argument was that God is the Father He's the creator of us all, and there's been rebellion against Him. That was His argument in chapter 1, that God is the Father. He's the creator of us all, and so naturally, everybody on planet Earth wants to think of them as being His children. But Scripture is very, very clear. The only way to become His child is actually by faith in Jesus Christ. John 1.12, look with me on the screen. It says this, "'As many as received Him,' meaning Jesus,' To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. See, there's a corollary going on here. Unless people believe in Jesus and they're in Jesus, that results in being led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit entering you. Unless those two things are true, they're not members of God's family. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, even though you're going to die, you're going to live again. You're going to live forever. And the guarantee of that is the presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And I want you to be able to gauge that today. I don't want you to leave here being confused about this issue because many people are. So how do I know whether or not this is true of me? Well, for one, the believer has a constant presence of the Holy Spirit in them. My family is saying to me as I'm aging, um, man, Mark, some of the things you're doing, your dad used to do. And I, I sometimes recoil at that, like, oh, man, I'm, I think of the negative things. I, I don't want to be identified that way. Or, or sometimes Lori will say, your mom used to say that. Do you remember that? Your mom used to talk like that. Well, about two or three weeks ago, I was bending up and picking something off the floor. I can't remember what it was, and I just got down. And as I got up, I just went, oh, a little bit of a groan, right? And Mackenzie said to me in that moment, oh, dad, you sound like Grandpa. I said, what? She said, he used to do that. Well, okay, it makes sense. I belong to them, right? I was raised by them. I pick up their habits. I pick up their traits. I, I am theirs. And so it makes sense. How cool would it be, church, if somebody said to you, I see Jesus in you. God's in you. You are his. You're his child. So we probably should say that to each other more often. I see that characteristic. God would have done that thing you just did. I see Jesus in you. That's what Paul's driving towards here. He helps us to understand Jesus is in us. Galatians 2.20, look at me on the screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This concept of living in us and dwelling with us is really, really important it's very important for you to be able to gauge where you're at because the Holy Spirit is not an occasional visitor who comes and goes. He has permanent residence. One of two Greek words you're going to see this morning on the screen. There's three of them in your notes, but here's the one that I want you to see right now, this word oikeia. And it's talking about the place that you're going to go to when you leave the auditorium today. Most of you are going to go home, where you, wherever you make your home at, where you hang out at. This is what it's talking about when it's talking about the Holy Spirit that he dwells within us. Ikea is actually a root word for the English word economy because the economy of a household was what was always thought of when people managed the affairs of their household, their finances and their managing their family, this this particular word. So it's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit comes, he sets up housekeeping within you. Is is that not incomprehensible? That God's very own spirit makes his home in us boggles the mind. So that's why you find Paul saying what he does in verse 10. He's got this thought of continuing the same thought. Therefore, in verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, because you live in a fallen world, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So the Spirit, are you catching that? The Spirit indwelling you, the Holy Spirit and Christ in you, they're not two different things, they're one and the same. These are actually the the same entity. It's just emphasizing that God is Jesus. Jesus is God. God is in you. So although your physical body is decaying, even now we're enjoying life. You've got God's Spirit taking permanent residence in you, giving you guarantee of eternity, and the prerequisite for that life is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So not only are you alive now, but in time, even though your body is decaying, even though you're breaking down and you're under the curse of this fallen planet, you will be resurrected one day. You don't sound so excited about that. But, you know, here's the problem. Many people under 30 are feeling like, what's he talking about breaking down? I look good, right? <laughs> I don't feel it. You just wait, okay? You'll be getting up off the floor one day groaning, oh, I didn't feel quite so right. I'm not sure what that... There, there's a reality. We live on a planet that is breaking apart. And God says, yeah, that's true. You're living on a fallen planet. But I'm going to resurrect you one day. And the Holy Spirit doing the oikeia, dwelling in you, is your guarantee. So go with me to verse 11 with that thought in mind. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, even though they're falling apart. How? Through His Spirit who dwells in you. I need to hit the pause button right there because anytime an auditorium has this many people in it, you can't just assume that everybody is on the same page with that issue. Maybe somebody's watching online right now and they're not yet a believer. They're not sure they really buy into this thing. And so that if right there is a really big if to them because most in our world who do not yet believe would say, that's a huge if. If God raised Jesus from the dead, that's, that's the first big if. There's two big ifs going on in the midst of that statement. Let me hit the first one. If God raised Jesus from the dead, you got to settle that one first and foremost And I know that many of you already have. Many in this auditorium already know. You absolutely know where you land on that issue. But if you haven't yet, you must decide, do I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? For me, it comes down to two criteria. And I think probably this is true for most of humanity. The first one of the two for me is this. Is the action of God in Jesus consistent with the nature and character of God? In other words, is it God's nature and character to rescue? Is he a merciful God? Is he a forgiving God? Would it be consistent with the nature of God to send his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Because he's not willing that any would perish but that all would come to repentance? Is that consistent with the nature of God? Well, as you read the Bible, you find absolutely God is a God who rescues So once you've dealt with that very first issue of the criteria, maybe you have to go on to the second one. Maybe you're an individual who's not sure you really believe all that the Bible says. Can I really trust what is written? And let's just bear down in the New Testament. let's just bear down on the book of Romans. Is there credibility with the witnesses that are involved? So think of it this way. If someone comes to you with a piece of information or some news that seems absolutely inconceivable, you have to decide whether or not you believe what that person is telling you is the truth. Can I actually take that person at their word? Am I buying what they're selling? We make those type of decisions every single day. When I was in college in the 1980s, I was working my way through college doing various jobs, and one of the jobs I was put on by my employer um, was to hang some drywall on a ceiling. And I was working with some other guys who were um, not going to college with me, but they were co-laborers together. And one of the guys who was working with us, his name was Omar, and Omar had um, a habit of really telling very exaggerated stories. And he would, he would tell some whoppers. We'll just say it as it is. He lied a lot, okay? And so because he exaggerated a lot, you never knew when to take him seriously. Well, one particular day around noontime, I'm hanging some drywall up on a ceiling and my hands are full and he comes flying through the door. He came off his lunch break early and he said, Mark, the president's just been assassinated. I said, yeah, right, Omar. You know, continue putting screws in the ceiling. He said, no, I'm serious. President Reagan has just been shot. Well, in fact, President Reagan had been shot, but I didn't believe him. There's no smartphone. There was no app. There's nothing I could check for a news source. And he said, you've got to go find a radio. You've got to hear this. I said, Omar, right, if it's real, I'll find out later. He said, no, I'm serious. Well, I couldn't believe him because he had lied a lot. The credibility of the witness was not something I could trust. So you have to ask yourself, when I read the stories in the Bible, is the credibility of those individuals something that I can trust? And if you're struggling with believing this morning, you have a few questions to ask yourself. Here's the first one. They're in your notes this morning. You might want to use these if you have individuals in your life who are not yet believers. These are questions individuals should ask themselves about the Bible. I'll go through them real quickly. Am I open to the possibility of what the Bible is saying to be true? Because if I answer no to that, none of these other questions matter whatsoever. I might as well just stop right there. What about Paul? Does Paul's moral character make it unlikely that he is given to deception? In other words, does he blatantly lie? Does he fabricate things? Here's a third one. Are are there credible witnesses? Or is Paul alone in this? Well, you obviously know how to answer that as you read the Bible. All the authors of the New Testament say the exact same thing. What about this one? Is there any claim that yields some insights that make sense of the total picture? When Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that this world is decaying and it's breaking down, is that credible? Do I believe that? Can I see that before? Absolutely. You don't even need Paul to say it. You can just look around at the world that you're in. And it does reveal God's purposes. Here's the last one. Are there any lasting effects that gives credence to Paul's testimony on these issues? Can I see life change in the people around me? I see it in my own life. I see it in you. I see it down through generations of church history. So once you settle these issues, how you land on them, you can get past that first big if. I am a Christian, I am a believer in Jesus Christ because I can answer every single one of those questions. And I believe that most of you can too. You know where you stand on that. Maybe you should review them later today just to check yourself. So that takes you to the second really big if that's buried in that question. Because Paul says, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, he says, if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, verse 11, He will also give life to your mortal bodies. You're going to die, but you can live forever. Your destiny can be secure. You will be raised, and he will give life to you even though you're dying. See, Paul's point in verse 11, what he's really driving at here, it's the Spirit that gives life. It's the Holy Spirit and the presence of him. He is the one who brings it. So the Spirit was the agent of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. Verse 11 is validating that. The Holy Spirit is the one that brought Jesus physically back to life, brought new life to him. And just as the Spirit lifted Jesus out of the grave and brought life from physical death, he put life back in his body. Scripture is saying, in the same way, the Holy Spirit gives new life to believers now and forever. And all of God's people said amen. He does it now and forever. So John 6.63, if you don't believe me, Jesus said it himself, God speaking it is the Spirit who gives life, God validating it. So as you go through the New Testament, you find routinely a connection between conversation about the resurrection of Jesus and your future, your future resurrection. Let me give you two examples. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.14, the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. Here's a second one. 1 Corinthians 6:14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. See, not only have you been regenerated and been given a new soul, and God says I forgive your sins past, present, and future, but in time your bodies that are now under the curse of death are going to be resurrected. That means you get to trade in this old broken down body for a new model. And I know some of you would do that right now if you could. I don't want to wait. I'll take it now. I've got too many wounds on my body, right? There's too many groans and aches we'd say, okay, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready. But others would say, no, I'm pretty healthy. I'm willing to wait. I'll hang in there for a little longer. I want to experience more of this life. doesn't matter where you land on that as you hear this. The Holy Spirit who regenerated you that same Holy Spirit will be raising you, and that Holy Spirit guarantees you that this is going to happen. So think of a young lady who just got engaged. She's got a ring on her finger, and and that ring, that, that guarantees something for her. That guy that came to her and asked her to be his wife, and she said yes, and she's wearing a ring, what does she have on her finger? She's got a seal. She's got a commitment that something's going to happen in the future. There's a promise. There's a day coming. Even though it hasn't arrived yet, it's going to happen. And God says, I gave you my Holy Spirit as a seal. It's a promise on your finger. You can take it to the bank as a guarantee that I'm going to hand your mortal bodies over and I'm going to raise you up and you're going to have new life and you will be made absolutely perfect. Amen. Amen amen. We'll take that guarantee. Now, with great Privilege, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've just heard all that you've heard, you have privilege. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And God is very emphatic about that issue. Because we have the assurance of the resurrection, there's a responsibility that goes with it. It places us under an obligation. These are the last two verses we're going to cover today, but go with me to verse 12. Verse 12 says, So then, brethren... We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. It might help you to think of are going to die right there. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. First of all, I think it's really cool that Paul puts himself on the same plane with the rest of us when he uses the word we. I know it seems really subtle, but he's saying, I'm not above you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're on the same plane, and we are under an obligation. So he's speaking to those of us who have been promised this victory, and he quickly moves to the issue of an obligation. And he's not talking about a monetary obligation. It's not like you owe somebody money. Nobody likes to think of themselves as being in debt, but this is not what he's talking about here. He's throwing it down decisively, and he says, we owe the flesh nothing. We have no responsibility to it. So the way Paul is putting it here, he's saying, even though it constantly calls to you, even though you feel the temptation to be drawn back to it, and it constantly says, come back to me, pay attention to me. We used to have so much fun together. Let's go party. Even though it constantly calls to you, Paul says, you do not owe it. Do not give it any attention. Well, what do you have a debt to then? Because he doesn't state it there. Who is the debt to? And he leads us to look for the Holy Spirit, but very elegantly, he doesn't state it. We know that's who the debt to is to. The debt is, is to God, but Paul doesn't even say it there. Go with me back into verse 13 and he talks about those who are living according to the flesh. And he says those individuals will die. He says they must die, are going to die, and that has confused people throughout church history, as believers have read the book of Romans, and they think as Paul has written this, he's talking about individuals losing their salvation. Paul, what are you talking about? Are you talking about if I do behaviors that displease God, that I can lose my salvation? Is that what you're referring to? Let me put that to rest for you very, very quickly. No. It's not what he's talking about. He's not warning believers you can lose your salvation if you fall back into the ways of the flesh. Jesus says you, you're regenerated. You've been born again. Now, a regenerated person will sin, right? We do. 1 John 1.8 is evidence of that. He says you, you say you don't have any sin in you, you're deceiving yourself. The truth's not in you if you think you don't have any sin in you. But a believer will not be finding themselves in habitual sin, saying, I know what God said. I don't care. He's not talking about losing your salvation. You have already been given absolute assurance. I hope you remember this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, no condemnation. Do you know what that means? It means no condemnation. No condemnation, underline, underline, underline. No condemnation. Are you getting tired of it yet? I hope not. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that can't be what he's talking about. He can't be talking about losing, excuse me, losing your salvation on the heels of saying you can't lose it. Here's what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is those whose lives are characterized by the flesh, that's not a true Christian. They're still spiritually dead. They're not dealing with the reality that sin has a hold of them. And if that one does not come to Jesus, he says they must die. They will die, in other words, the second death, because God said the wages of sin is death. This is why this subject has confused so many people. Verse 13, on the heels of that same statement, he says, But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is your second and last Greek word this morning. And I, I want you to really drink this one in. Because he's talking about an action on your part, something that you need to be doing. Something that as a Christ follower we would find ourselves doing. It's this word Thanatu. It, it, it's based in the word Thanato, which means the word death. But thanatu means to put something to death, to cause it to be killed. And it's a verb, and if you think back to your school days when you were in English class, you remember that a verb is an action word. So we've got an action word going on here. There's something that's supposed to be happening. Literally, putting a person to death is how this word was used in the first century, thanatu. When the Romans killed somebody, thanatu. If you've got a really old copy of the Bible or maybe a King James version of the Bible, it might even have the word in there, mortify, because its root is mortician. It has to do with the things of the dead. God's talking about killing something here, and it's in the present tense, meaning it's a continuing activity. It keeps going on. So this is not something you do once and you're done with it. This goes on daily, and that's why you find Paul saying, I die daily. I have to kill this stuff. And if you mortify your own flesh, your own desires, Paul says, you're going to live. And that makes people think, well, that sounds like I'm earning something. How how can that be? It sounds like I'm earning God's favor. Check yourself on this and hear this. Check yourself to see if you agree with this. A Christian is identified by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And God says, if my spirit is in you, it's constantly working on you. It's constantly teaching you and disciplining you and admonishing you and causing you to grow in your walk. And although at times a snapshot of your life might show that you look like you're living in the flesh, that's not going to be true of you all the time. If somebody took a photograph of an activity you did this last week that you're not very proud of, you wouldn't want necessarily other people to see it. Maybe shaking your fist at somebody in traffic, or maybe some gossip that took place in the hallways at work or in school, or or some activity where you couldn't control yourself. You wouldn't want a picture of that published on social media. We don't like it when we don't look good. God says there may be snapshots when you're going to look like that, and you're going to trip and find yourself falling into it. But a believer is going to have evidence that they're actually progressing in their walk with Jesus. So I want to give you some really practical measuring rods so you can check yourself right now. These aren't in your notes necessarily, I just want to ask you some questions. Because Paul's saying, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You're going to die, but you're going to live. So here's the first question. Do you see evidence in your own life that you're growing in your walk with Christ? Are you increasing in that? Do you see evidence that you're pressing on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus? That's what Paul talked about for himself. Not that those actions save you, right? I want to make sure I'm really clear on that. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're already saved, amen? Okay, so it's not that these actions save you, but it's evidence that you're walking in the Spirit. So let me get really practical with you. Is God's word making more sense to you today than what it did maybe five years ago, maybe three years ago, maybe even a year ago? Do you find your sensitivity to the things of God increasing? Are you more aware? Are you, are you getting creeped out more and more by the things of the world? So it just make you, oh, man, that is ugly. God says, that's my spirit at work in you. Do you have a greater passion to share the truth with others than what you might have 10 years ago, 5 years ago? Do you want more people to know? Here's a hard one. Have your own personal habits moved more towards righteousness than unrighteousness? How do you gauge yourself in that area? Here's Here's a hard one for all of us. What about your tongue? Are you keeping that thing in check? Are you working harder to control the tongue? Because God says you might even have to lop that thing off. (laughs) Here's a big one for us. How's your joy factor? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, self-control. God says by all these things you should be able to measure yourself. Big picture. Are you different today than you were five years ago? If that's the case and you're a believer in Jesus, God says, that's my Holy Spirit doing that in you. Satan's not going to do that to you. I'm growing you in my likeness and in my image. Just in case you're really beating yourself up right now, I want you to see how Paul described himself in the midst of these kind of things. After being an apostle for a long time and an author of the Bible, he writes this about himself. Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's just confessing. I'm not perfect. I don't have control of all these things, but one thing I do do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." See, the objective of his life is completely push on, man. Don't wallow in your failures. By the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you, pick yourself up. Move on. Press on. Don't stop. Keep pushing towards that high calling because as a believer, as far as these actions are concerned with putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you got to get really decisive about this. And Scripture's using some pretty hostile words here. It says you've got to be really determined about this because there's no life in deeds of the flesh. So there might be something in your life, and I don't know what it is, you might have to drag it out in the street and put a bullet in it. Get graphic enough for you? Jesus is even more graphic than me, and I'll show you that in just a minute. You might have to just kill that very thing that seems like it's holding you and not because of some achievement Not because you've got to do that to earn life. God's saying, I've already given you life. Martin Luther, before the Reformation and before he totally revolutionized the church 500 years ago, before he understood what grace really was from God, he used to take himself into caves and monasteries and he would whip himself it, with a flog, he just beat us back till it was raw, trying to make himself come under submission. God says, I've given you grace. By grace you are saved. And through faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can kill these things. So Paul says very graphically, you are putting it to death, and that means it's on you, church. You are putting it to death through the Spirit. You've got to take some action. You just can't wait for God to pull the trigger for you. God's saying, I'm expecting you to put a bullet in something. It takes place through the actions of a believer, through the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in you. So as a Christ follower, I have an obligation. I have a debt. And my debt is no longer to the flesh. It's to the Holy Spirit. And gratefully, God gave me the Holy Spirit, and he gave you the Holy Spirit in order to put to death the deeds of the body. Let me give you some really gruesome imagery, and it comes from Jesus And he wants us to get it. He wants us to understand just how aggressive sin is. So he says this in Matthew 5. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And he's not thinking you're graphically going to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. That's not going to make you more righteous. It's a hard issue, right? So we're going to come back to that next week with Jesus' story explaining this. Here's what he's doing. He's reminding us there is no action that you can take. Nothing is too drastic when it comes to dealing with sin. So there is no price that is too great to pay to stomp it out. God says, you need to choke it. Too many times, I think believers keep something around as a pet. We, we think that, I can manage this. i got control of this. It's not that big a deal. God says, no, you can't. You've got to choke the life out of that thing. You've got to take it out of your life. You can't manage it. I know what's best for you. Um, biblical illustration for you. There's a guy by the name of Saul who was king over Israel way before Jesus was born. Thousands of years ago he lived. And God sent the prophet Samuel to Saul to tell him specifically what he wanted him to do. He said, Saul, there's a nation around you called the Amalekites, and they are egregious against me. There is nothing that they do that is redeemable. And in order to purge the nation and make it ready for your habitation, you've got to deal with them, Saul. You've got to destroy them. But Saul, what he decided to do was to go into that nation and keep some things for himself. So he goes into the land where the Amalekites live, and he decides he kind of likes King Agag, so he lets King Agag live. And he kind of decides he really likes King Agag's stock, his livestock. So he thinks, that's some pretty healthy-looking livestock. I could really get some great steaks out of those. And he brings them in. And then Samuel shows up, and he says, Saul, what did you do? Don't you understand that God wants obedience instead of sacrifice? Saul said, well, Samuel, um, I need you to understand that the people in my nation, he throws them under the bus. He says, those individuals, they said that these would be really, really great to keep around. They pressured me into it. And besides, they would make great sacrifices for God. Don't you understand? These These are the firstborn. These are the fattest calves." That's when Samuel said, God wants obedience, uh, Saul. And he said, so for this very day the nation has been torn from you and it's been given to another who is better than you because you've abandoned the ways of God. There's an extreme price for Saul to pay. My experience is God's people fall back from him when their focus turns away from him. and We need to talk about that a lot next week and begin turning their eyes on the things of the world. For all the great things that the authors of the New Testament wrote, they had to say some really hard things to Christians. And so you find Paul writing books like Colossians because the people living in the city of Colossae, they were kind of getting distracted from the things of God. Let me show you an example of that. Look with me on the screen at Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is. See, they're they're not. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had to tell them this. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm going to send you out the door with four really simple things, and they're probably going to appear so simple to you, you're tempted to just tune them out. They're in your notes this morning. But I want you to see them because these are things that you can do in the midst of your day, throughout your day, throughout the course of your week to deal with these issues. Here's the very first one. Be willing to be really honest and confess. Talking to God and saying, this is a reality, God. This is what's going on in my life. Do you think you're going to surprise God when you do that? No. He knows everything, right? It's going to be more like, okay, thanks, I I know that. What took you so long? God is not in the business of shaming for the purpose of shaming. He convicts us so that we will deal with the reality of what's going on in our life. Because if we continue to ignore sin and we delude ourselves in becoming more susceptible to its power and its ability to come back even stronger the second time, because sin is so destructive you can't keep it as a pet, you got to put a bullet in it. you got to kill it. If you're wondering more and more about how to do that as we're talking about this, this that's where I'm really going with this next week. If you don't recognize it and put it to death, it's going to come back again and again and again. Here's a second one. I know these are simple. Having your mind fixed on God, and as you read the book of Psalms and you look at the way that David wrote, he constantly is reassuring himself by expressing to God, my eyes are fixed on you. My heart is steadfast towards you. I am dedicated to you. Here's a third one meditating on God's Word. And if you don't know what that is, that's part of where we're going next week also. But when you do that, when you spend time in God's Word and you immerse yourself in a particular passage of Scripture, what you have just done is given the Holy Spirit the opportunity to illuminate your mind because God said His Word is alive and active. Amen, church? Okay? And He said He speaks by the power of His Holy Spirit. So, if His Word is alive and the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind, it must be the Holy Spirit that's going to instruct you and teach you as you meditate on God's Word. And here's what He does it gives you a deeper understanding. And as you get a deeper understanding, when you know God's Word and you obey God's Word, you're building up walls of defense against sin. Here's the fourth one. You're going to think this is the most simple of all, but you see it on the screen already and you see it in your notes. Talk with your heavenly father. Just spend time with him about these issues because here's what we're tempted to do. God, I really need a job. God, you know that my checking account is low. God, you know my aunt, she's got heart problems. Or God, my son, he's not doing the things he should do. But when is the last time you talked with God about sin in your own life? Do you think he's going to help you with that? Every single time. You want God to respond to a prayer request? Just ask him to help you defeat sin. Because remember, with prayer, there's always this element of confession. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. And he goes down through the list that you're very familiar with, with the Lord's Prayer, and when he hits the forgive us our debts so we can forgive our debtors, that's what he's talking about. God, I've got this issue I need to confess and deal with in my own life so that you can forgive me and then I can deal with these other people. The writer of Hebrews is very consistent with that. Here's the last verse I'm going to share with you this morning. In Hebrews chapter 4, he talks about how we're supposed to approach God. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive what, church? Yeah, because he's merciful, Right? You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you that we may receive your mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. What do I need that for? I'm already saved. Why is he writing to Christians telling them to go to God and ask for mercy? You've already been merciful because we come to him with sin in us. Even though he's forgiven past, present, future sin, you still got sin activity going on. And you got to deal with that. So Paul's point in chapter 8, especially as we come into verse 13, is this. The Holy Spirit who is dwelling in you, who has taken up residence, that very one, by his power, you are able to destroy sin in your life. Because once we once were, we no longer are, praise Jesus. He's redeemed us, so sin no longer has a claim on you. Here's what you're going to find as we go into the last part of Romans. By the way, today is part 50. Feels like it should be a celebration of some type to me. I'm just saying. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. It, <laughs> 50 parts in this thing. Okay. As we get into these last chapters, what you're going to find is Romans takes a shift. And everything that Paul has built a case on in the first eight chapters becomes application. So if you've been wondering, how does all this apply to my life? That's where he goes with the last part of Romans. It's all application. So as you come into Romans 12, you find really heavy application when Paul begins saying, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies before him as a holy and living sacrifice, worthy of acceptance before God, which is your reasonable act of service. Some of that stuff should be really clicking with you if you're a church person. You understand where Paul's going with this. Can I remind you that everything you've heard this morning, all these things that you've examined, God is stating fact. These are not wishes. You really are going to die, but you're going to live forever. Eternity's waiting for you, and he's going to resurrect your body, and you're going to get a perfect body. God says in exchange... All I'm asking you to do, is stop living the way you used to. Be a force for the kingdom. And when you're embroiled in sin, you can't be. We belong to him, not to evil. So God says, live like it. Because I don't want you to be conformed to this world. Because I sent my son. and He gave everything to buy you back. His name is Jesus. And yeah, you're going to die, but you're going to see him again one day. Let's pray. Father, there are times when we can leave here encouraged, and there's times when we can leave discouraged or um, maybe even somber. I pray that that is not the case today, that we would leave rather emboldened, encouraged and emboldened at the same time, to realize how great and vast your love is for us. Maybe somber, Father, at the time when we recognize how great the responsibility is. We didn't just get our ticket punched, but rather there's an expectation from you on our part that we would walk before you and that our, our walk would match what you say to be true that the Holy Spirit is in us. Father, I pray that you would cause us to be more sensitive so that we would indeed, like Paul, want to press on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus and be willing to be honest with each other that we're not perfect, but we're going to keep pressing on. God, I pray for courage for this body, for the men and the women, the students that are here those that will be coming into the next service, those that were already here, Father, remind us throughout the course of this week ahead of us the things that you have taught us today. We praise you for the one who cares so much that you bought us back from death. And we look forward to seeing you one day. So we praise you in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.